On August 21st, 2017, a total solar eclipse passed over the continental United States. It's the first time since 1979 that the lower 48 states had the moon's shadow fall on the surface of the Earth as it passed close enough to the Earth while it moved between the Earth and the Sun for its shadow to fall on Earth and for the Sun to appear to be blotted out. From the ground, the sights were spectacular and unlike anything else that occurs not only on our planet, but anywhere in the solar system. What was it like and what can you expect to see for the next one or any total eclipse you experience in your life? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. Like many people in the United States who wanted to view a total eclipse, I had to travel over a hundred miles to venture down to the path of totality. I arrived in Amity, Oregon and viewed the eclipse from the east side of a hill which faced further east towards the Cascade Mountain region. It was an incredible view, just even on a clear day. You could see the hazes across the mountains, which are helped out, unfortunately, by a blazing wildfire on the side of Mount Jefferson, which is also in the path of totality. Further north, Mount Hood was visible, a snow-capped mountain that has skiing open 365 days of the year, and a full, large valley was visible beneath. It was a clear day other than the hazes in the sky, no clouds, and the sun had risen by time it was just after 9 a.m., just before first contact where the moon first appears to touch the sun's disk. It was such a clear day that there was not a single cloud in the sky, and the sun had already risen well above the haze. It had also gotten warm. The temperature was already in the 70s Fahrenheit and was rising, looking to go well into the 80s even at such an early stage. It was shaping up, in other words, to be the perfect day to view an eclipse. During the partial phase, I, like many others, was set up to view the eclipse to observe it in three ways. One, with eclipse glasses on. You could have also used a pair of goggles or shades or hoods that had appropriately shaded welder's glass on it, 14 or higher. But the eclipse glasses gave a clear, crisp view of the sun's disk. The optical quality was even higher than I had anticipated. And for those of you who still have eclipse glasses, remember, you can use these to look at the sun at any time. You can also use a pinhole camera where you poke a hole in any surface, a piece of cardboard, styrofoam board, paper, or even a metal disc or a colander, a kitchen colander. The most clever pinhole camera I saw was a sweater pulled taut where you could see hundreds if not thousands of images of the sun through it. For those of you who didn't bring any equipment, you could do what I did and simply take your fingers, crisscross them in a waffle pattern, and hold them up in front of you with your back to the sun, where the light filters through your crossed fingers. 
that's a pinhole image. And the last way is I had a very good pair of binoculars that I had unfortunately damaged the alignment of when they fell over on a tripod. But using one open large end of the binoculars and allowing the sunlight to shine through it, you can project a greatly magnified image of the sun's disk onto the ground below you. And for me, that was the best way to get a close-up view of the sun and the moon's shadow passing in front of it. A total solar eclipse doesn't start off very spectacularly, but as the moon begins to move further and further onto the sun's disk, as you get to about halfway, a few interesting things begin to happen. The first thing you notice is that the quality of the air changes, which is to say the air temperature has reached a maximum point and then begins to drop. The sun, which is normally brilliantly bright and also warm, especially in the summer still looks brilliant. In fact, you still definitely don't want to look at it even if you attempt to. The signal your brain gives you immediately tells you to look away. But there's less heat coming from it. In fact, you're used to the sun being a warming source of light. And yet, even when you hold your hand out directly or relax and enjoy the direct sunlight, the warmth is nowhere to be found. And next, you start to notice that the sky appears to change. If you look towards the west, the sky begins to appear a darker shade of blue than it did towards the east. It was like the approach of sunset, except coming from the wrong direction. And something else that was interesting is if you looked at the shadows your body cast, even if you just held out your hand with your fingers splayed, you start to notice that in between your fingers, it starts to look like you're growing tiny little tumors. Those aren't tumors, of course, but rather the image of the moon's disk starting to appear, which is blocking out the light from the sun. As the eclipse goes on, you start to notice that things begin to change further. The light on the landscape changes. It starts to look like it's dimmer, but not like it would later in the day where you actually receive more red light than you do blue light. Quite to the contrary, it's the same spectrum of light you're used to seeing. It just feels muted. It's as though someone put a low light filter on or like someone had put a strange Instagram filter over the entire world. It's like later in the day, except it's uniquely distinct. As you get into the 90% of partiality, the sky really continues to darken, and the light over the land changes dramatically. The quality of the light is something that even a partial or annular eclipse fails to bring to you. As you get to 95, 98, 99% totality, when you start to get really close, it's strange how different the light looks. The sky begins to darken even further, and the first sign that something really unusual is happening is the appearance of that first brilliant light. Where I was, it was the planet Venus, which stood out a significant angle away from the sun, and yet was clearly visible, that bright shining light, which no doubt appeared as a crescent if you viewed it through any magnification at all. It was the first hint that things were about to get really weird. 
Through the eclipse glasses, I watched as the last vestiges of the sun faded away. It went from a final crescent that got smaller and smaller and smaller to just a sliver. The edges of the crescent appeared to get eaten as the moon passed over the sun's disk. At the last moments, it got narrower and narrower and narrower and started to slightly fragment. This was due to the crater walls of the moon coming up and blocking the sun's disk, while the crater depths, the divots in the moon, appeared to let the sunlight through, the phenomenon known as Bailey's beads. Finally, for the last few seconds, just two seconds long or so, just a single point of light remained, the diamond ring effect. And at the last instant, it went away. There was nothing left to be seen through the eclipse glasses. At that moment, I took the glasses off, and what did I see looking at the sun? I saw the sight that's unique to totality. We've all seen pictures of the sun's corona before, and I knew that it extended far out into space, five million kilometers away from the limb of the sun, or more than three times the entire solar diameter. But I had no idea to expect what I'd be able to see with my own eyes. The sun's corona changes over time, and it also changes dependent on how hot the plasma is away from the sun, how hot the corona is at various locations, what the sun's magnetic field is doing at that moment, and also the sensitivity of your own eyes. When I looked at it, I was shocked by how big and bright the sun's corona appeared to be. It seemed to be the full diameter of the sun's disk in three separate locations. It was almost like someone with giant devil ears and a big devil goatee that the three streamers coming off were positioned just at about the 11 o'clock position, the 1.30 position, and right around the 6 o'clock position. It was enormous, it was brilliant, it was shimmering, and appeared to have some motion-like effects. And yet, I couldn't look away, because buried inside the corona was darkness. Where the new moon was, even though the new moon is brighter than any star in the sky, it's a diffuse brightness that spread out over something a half degree in diameter, and it was completely invisible. It looked like you had this brilliant, wispy, hairy, fuzzy corona surrounding a giant ball of darkness. The sky outside of it was an ear dark blue, not quite a twilight color, not quite a night color, but far darker than anything you'd normally see during the day. The next thing I did was immediately look for Mars and Mercury. I knew that just about 12 to 15 degrees away to the west, I could expect to see Mars, while that same distance away to the east, I could expect to see Mercury. Yet the sky never got dark enough for either of those to emerge. Yet right as I was looking for Mercury, something else emerged. There was a bright, constant, non-twinkling point of light that appeared to slowly move throughout the sky. What it turned out to be was one of the Flock 2 satellites. These are very small satellites manufactured by Planet Labs that are designed to monitor the surface properties of the Earth in the optical and near-infrared. And yet, 
flying overhead, moving in low Earth orbit, we were able to see it migrate across the sky, a rare sight. And yet other observers across the continental United States, some of them saw other satellites, yet only the people within a few mile radius of where I was were able to see the Flock 2 satellite at all. I went back to looking at the corona to see if it would be possible to see any stars nearby. I had known that Regulus, the 21st brightest star overall, would be in angular position just about a single degree away from the edge of the sun. And sure enough, if you looked at it not directly, but with your averted vision, where you look just a few degrees away and let your peripheral vision look for it, you could see that bright star Regulus right Right around the lower part of the corona, just off to the left at around the 7 o'clock position. It was gorgeous, and you immediately knew with a star that close to the sun, if you could measure it to an accurate enough position, and then look back either six months previously or six months later to when Regulus appears brightly in the night sky, you could determine the angle of deflection induced by the sun. This would be the way that you you, just by observing a single star's position accurately enough, could have confirmed Einstein's general relativity for yourself. While I was looking at the corona, another spectacular but subtle phenomenon appeared. Parts of the corona appeared to be pink right around the edge of the sun. This was not something I expected to see with my naked eye, yet I immediately knew what it was. You see, the sun's corona is not made of neutral atoms, but is rather made of an ionized plasma, most of which is hydrogen. As the electrons get knocked off of hydrogen, they leave behind a bare nucleus, usually a single proton. Yet the free electrons can bind up with these protons again, forming neutral hydrogen. As the electron cascades down towards lower energy states, one of the strongest transition is between the third and the second energy level. When the hydrogen atom makes that transition, it appears as a line of exactly 656.3 nanometers, the hydrogen alpha transition. When you observe that, that is red light, and red combined with the bluish-white light from the sun's corona appears to turn everything pink. That pink you saw is a real visual effect of this chemical transition and is one of the only natural phenomena in all of the universe that allows you to see it with your naked eye. Something else I got to look out at was the horizon. I had a 270 degree view of the horizon everywhere except directly to the west. And one of the things that surprised me is that it wasn't just broad daylight over in the horizon, but rather it was reddish. It was like there was a sunset all around the horizon, everywhere I could look, where the moon's shadow wasn't falling. And yet, unusually enough, the red color surprised me. Normally, when you see that red color, it's because the sun is low on the horizon, and the sunlight has to pass through a large amount of atmosphere before it reaches your eyes. Yet, it was broad daylight, the sun was overhead, and normally the horizon appears blue. 
but that's because you have the sun's light scattering blue light everywhere around you, everywhere in between you and the horizon. Yet with the moon's shadow falling on you, falling on an area approximately dozens or scores, in future eclipses up to even a hundred miles around on all sides, you're seeing light that gets singly scattered. Sure, as the sunlight comes in and hits the atmosphere, blue light scatters a little bit more and red light scatters less. But where the sunlight hits the atmosphere on the edge towards what you see as the horizon, some of that light streams directly towards your eye. The blue light, for the most part, gets scattered multiple times and gets scattered away, but the red light doesn't. The red light, for the most part, will free stream towards your eyes after that first scattering, much more so than any other color of light. That's why if you had a clear view of the horizon, it appeared that reddish-orange sunset color everywhere you looked. I had anticipated that it might get dark immediately, or, in accordance with what others had described, that you wouldn't notice a large dimming or loss of sunlight until the moment of totality. As it turned out, that may be more a function of what your eyes are or aren't sensitive to. It may also be a function of cloud cover. People who had cloudy skies report that there's a big difference between 99% totality and 100% totality. But that may be a function of most of the moon's penumbral shadow versus the umbral shadow being scattered differently when you have clouds overhead versus where all you have is a clear sky. What definitely happened, though, is it did get darker. As I looked to the west and had the view of a city, I noticed during totality something that wasn't happening during the partial phase. The street lights and automatic city lights turned on during totality in a way that they didn't during either the partial phase before or after. Something else that also provided a spectacular view was Mount Hood, not in the shadow of the total eclipse. Because it was covered with snow and it had direct sunlight shining on it, that snow reflect a tremendous amount of sunlight. And so during what was night during the day when the moon's shadow fell on us, Mount Hood appeared as bright as it always did and stood out as a luminous beacon on the horizon compared to everything else around it. I glanced out at the people in the crowd on the hillside with me. There were around 300 of them watching alongside. All of them, whether sitting, standing, or laying down, were all transfixed by the sight, staring upward, staring at the sun's corona with their jaws agape. About a quarter of them were actively crying, their eyes welled up with tears or tears coming down their face. A few people were huddled up into a ball. I couldn't tell whether it was from fear, from the cold, or from a more visceral reaction to something that no amount of preparation could ready them for. And finally, I turned to look back at the sun's corona, trying to take it in again, trying to see the finer detail, and then it happened. That first bead of brilliant light emerged at the edge of the disk. You could still see the corona, but that bright bead signaled the end of totality. 
it was time to either put your glasses on or risk damaging your eyes. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't risk damaging them, even though the temptation was so great. What had passed by of almost two minutes had felt like just 30 seconds. I wasn't ready for the eclipse to be over. With my glasses back on, I once again looked at the sun and watched it go from that single bead of light to multiple beads, and very quickly, in just a matter of a few seconds, back to a tiny sliver. Over the next few seconds, that sliver grew and grew and became a clearly identifiable crescent. With a brightness, thousands and thousands of times of what was seen during totality, by time I took my glasses off again, the eclipse was undoubtedly over. Even the ambient light seemed to return more rapidly to its full sun state than it had gone going from the uneclipsed sun to the eclipse sun. From third to fourth contact seemed to be much, much faster in terms of brightening than from first to second contact. Afterwards, we spoke with the people who had brought a digital thermometer. During the early phase of the partial eclipse, as totality approached, we had hit a maximum of 82 degrees Fahrenheit, and the forecast was that the temperature would drop by anywhere from 5 to 12 degrees Fahrenheit. Yet the lowest point we got shortly after totality, we had achieved a low temperature of 65 degrees. The temperature had plummeted by 17 degrees. Fahrenheit almost 10 full degrees Celsius. This is what happens when your direct sunlight is taken away. The heat, the infrared radiation isn't there, and the landscape chilled precipitously. We all may have had chills, but we couldn't blame it on our own internal perception. The temperature had really dropped by that much. Finally, I looked to the east, I was looking for the shadow racing across the land, yet I couldn't see one. Even from the hillside I was on, I was not at a high enough elevation or had a large enough vantage point to see the moon's umbral shadow passing across the valley. It was at that point that I remembered I had my spectacular binoculars and I could have looked at the sun's corona. I felt that, oh no, feeling I missed it. But then I realized that we all missed something. With just a brief few minutes of totality, it's impossible to see it all. As much as we would have loved to, you can only see and experience the things you see and experience in the time you have to do it. In many ways, that's the tragedy and the triumph of everything in life, that all you can do is experience what you've chosen to experience in the brief time you have here. Afterwards, I, like many others, was filled with a feeling of renewal and rebirth and hope. I felt like I was a part of one of the most phenomenal natural sights that being a human on the earth has to offer. At the age of 39 years old, after experiencing a partial eclipse and an annular eclipse, I had finally seen a total eclipse. And now that I know what it is, that I've experienced it, even for the brief moments of under two minutes, I know I want to see another one. 
Perhaps we'll meet up at the 2024 eclipse, which goes from Mexico through Texas, up through the Midwest United States over the Great Lake, to upstate New York and Maine, and then into Canada. That eclipse is over twice as long. At totality, where the maximum location is reached in Mexico, you can experience four and a half minutes of total darkness. Looking ahead even further to 2027, there's an eclipse that passes over the Iberian Peninsula in Europe and into northern Africa, where you are in Luxor, Egypt, you'll experience more than six minutes of totality. The sky will get darker. Stars and planets that were invisible during this eclipse will be able to be seen. And the amount of the moon's shadow will push the darkness region further and further out towards the horizon in all directions that you look. It's been said that on a scale of 1 to 10, a partial eclipse is a 5, and an annular eclipse is a 9, and not to be missed. But on that same scale, if I had to rate a total solar eclipse, I'd put it right about at a million. I know that messes up your 1 to 10 scale, but I can't emphasize enough what a one-of-a-kind unique experience being in the path of totality truly was. And I encourage everyone to see it at least once in your life. But if you do, I'll warn you, you may have exactly the same experience I did, where now that you've tasted it, you can't imagine going through life without seeing it again. The Starts With a Bang podcast is only made possible through the generous donations and contributions of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to sign up to become one today, you too can not only receive the rewards, but have your name read right here on the Starts With a Bang podcast. So thank you to Ryan Schultz, Samir Kumar, Bakhtiar, Chris Shaw, Denier, Rob Hansen, Richard Jousey, Igor Mitrofanov, Pedro Texera, Alexander Marius, Denise Arnaud, John Kozura, Nick Tomlinson, Guy Jin, Rafal Wojcik, Jason Besanseni, Bob Wilson, Marcelo Barnaba, Danny, Andrew T. Douglas, Chris Hilly, Weller Tractor Salvage, Zarko Apachik, James Nance, Bill Murphy, Sidney Atwood, Karen Garrison, Benjamin Turner, Joe Latone, John Seal, Rachel Merritt, Philip Radilovic, Peter Williams, Patrick Dennis, David Taschioni, Kevin Barnes, Glenn McDavid, Jose Enrique, Joe McFarlane, Braxton Thomason, Steve Omohundro, Harry Plumley, DGE, Thomas All, Mark Armstrong, John Mithot, Amir Asosnik, Radek Nesbida, and Nathan Hanna. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and I'll see you next time back here for more Starts With a Bang. <laughs> <laughs>